Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm the host, Sean Boyce. I'd like to welcome my guest to the show today, Boyd Lobo, who's the co-founder of Boast Traction and has written a best-selling book called Grassroots to Greatness. Hello, Lloyd. How are you? And thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Super excited to be here. Yeah, I'm very excited to dive more into your background, talk about a couple of exciting topics. But before we do that, if you don't mind, so that our audience can learn a little bit more about you and also your background, can you talk more about basically where you've come from and how you got to where you are today? Definitely. Long backstory, but you know, I, I grew up in Kuwait. My parents are from India. My dad was a farmer in India. My mom grew up in the slums of Mumbai, and they weren't educated. They had no money. To make the currency work for them, they couldn't go to the West. So back then, people would go to the Middle East. They went to Kuwait to work, and I was born there. Now, because they couldn't afford to take us on fancy summer vacations to Europe or the US or Canada, my summers were spent, my childhood summers were spent in the slums of Mumbai. That was probably my first experience with community because every probably 10, 15 homes had a TV. Now, my mom was working in Kuwait, so she could bring back home a TV. She had nine siblings, it's the small house with like four cement block walls and an aluminum roof. There was no toilet in the house. So everything from watching TV was communal and going to the restroom was communal. You stand in line waiting for the public restroom and you talk to people. In the summers, puddles would turn into ponds and we'd be swimming in there. My fondest childhood memories. Anytime we'd go home for the for end of the summer, summer vacation, your time to go home, I'd like grab my parents by their feet and be like, I don't want to go back. I'd cry and cry and cry. Fast forward a few years, I experienced probably the greatest marvel of all time. Kuwait was struck by the Gulf War, right? Iraq had invaded, security had lapsed in the country, there was no phones, there was no internet. That day when I went down my building with dad, I think I was a nine-year-old, and people weren't belaboring on problems. They were immediately coming together to think of solutions, right? Today, problems just perpetuate and fester and turn into new monsters. Back then, Obviously, the problem was large. We don't know if we're going to live or die. What are we going to do next? But people started immediately thinking of solutions. Hey, I can organize food supplies. Or, hey, I'll guard the building from X time to Y time. Somebody else is like, if you have displaced family members, I have extra room. Others are like, hey, well, the schools are empty. Maybe we can coordinate uh, shelter for people. Every building turned into sub-community, coordinated with the next community, the next building, the next building, the next building, turned into the largest evacuation movement, grassroots evacuation movement that communicated with embassies, with governments, and took the people to safety over months. And uh, you know, I experienced two great things that day. One is literally there's nothing that a small group of people who are united by a great sense of purpose that they can't do, right? They can literally move mountains. The other thing is the entrepreneurial spirit. I think as I was reflecting back and writing this book, like everyone asked me, like, where did you learn to become an entrepreneur? Or like, did you always have it in you? And I think entrepreneurship is not something you're born with, right? We're not what we're born with we become what we're nurtured through. We become the average of the people we surround ourselves with. And so for me, the entrepreneurial spirit dates back to that Gulf War because to me, entrepreneurship is not about making money, but it's about taking an obscure idea to execution and impact while dealing with extreme risk and uncertainty. No bigger risk and uncertainty than the Gulf War. 
Now, after that experience, I was always chasing this feeling of risk and uncertainty. Always this rebellious kid, always on the other side of risk and and trouble, right? Um, So a few years later, we immigrated to Canada. I didn't finish high school. I missed all my high school exams, didn't enter, attend the last semester. Now, what would most kids do that didn't finish high school? They wouldn't apply to university, right? I truly believe luck and risk are two sides of the same coin. The ones that get lucky are the ones that never stop flipping. Risk, 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 risk. And one day you get lucky. So I apply to every single university in Canada where SATs are not required. You write entrance exams from the school. One school called me. They asked me to write entrance exams. They had the previous year's transcripts. I wrote those entrance exams. Math and English did well. They said, hey, what happened to your transcripts? When are we going to get them? I said, there's political unrest in Kuwait. I made up some story. They're like, okay, start the semester. And uh, you know, if you don't give us the transcripts by the end of the month, we can't have you continue. Luck would have it. They never followed up. And so without graduating with a high school diploma, I graduated engineering, right? <laughs> so cool. luck awesome. and risk are two, two sides of the same coin. Now... I graduated engineering and I just didn't want to do that job. I was craving like this risk and uncertainty. So I started asking people, hey, what skill could I learn if I want to be a business person? Back then in 2005, nobody used the word startup or entrepreneur. It was all like business person, right? And I heard repeatedly that, hey, your communication is not the strongest. You need to improve this because everything you do as a business person from convincing your spouse that you're not going to bring money to convincing early customers when you have nothing to sell to convincing early employees when you have no money. And even at scale, you need to drive the vision is all communication. You need to fix that. Now, I thought to myself, you know, if I needed to learn communication, I can probably take some courses, public speaking, et cetera. But self-motivation is really hard for most individuals. Self-motivation is not showing up when things are perfect, but self-motivation is, do you show up when you're repeatedly punched in the gut? And so I knew for sure if I went to a public speaking class and five people laughed at me when I went on stage, I would never show up again. So I'm like, how do I put myself in an environment that forces me to communicate day in, day out? And in my research, I found that the best skill I could learn, the best job I could get is sales because sales requires you to communicate day in, day out. There's no other job that lets you do that. I mean, every waking moment you're communicating. So I started applying to sales jobs. And again, I use the word luck a lot because, you know, I applied to Xerox and both big companies and small, and nobody would give me a job. Engineer, why do you want to go in sales? The luck would have it, a founder needed cold callers, and I was part of that cold calling team. So I joined there. My parents lost it. Indian parents, they're like your friends of graduated engineering are now working at Microsoft and and Johnson and Johnson and big companies, and you're making cold calls for like minimum wage nearly. Like why? You know, fast forward today, I'm everything I am because of that that job, right? And and here's how that changed my life. The first call I made probably practiced four hours. The decision maker shows up, get to the connect, and I hang up. Everyone's laughing at me. But here's the thing. I gotta keep showing up now. My communication gets better and better and better. I'm like pivoting on the fly, polishing my messaging, learning to negotiate, building rapport. I get good at it. Now, my girlfriend, wife now, she gets into med school in New Jersey. And so I got to move to New Jersey. I start applying for jobs there. 
See, I said, you know, you are the average of the five people you surround yourself with because my first job was with a founder. No other big company in New Jersey would hire me. Take a risk on like a Canadian immigrant. So I get this free trade NAFTA TN visa to work doing sales for a startup. I jumped at the opportunity, right? Like from cold calling, now I got a sales job, be close to my girlfriend. I land there and there's no repeatable, scalable product or process. So now I'm tagging along with the founder and the execs to the sites of these large enterprise companies, trying to understand their flow and figure out what their pain points are, then write them down, turn them into product requirements so the devs can build it. And oh, by the way, you also need to learn marketing and launch the marketing side and learn you know, sales and learn all of these things. And most kids, they were in my position that applied to a sales job and ended up in a situation like this would quit. The thing is, again, systems eat motivation for breakfast. I'm in the situation. I can't just quit because I know how hard it was to get this job to begin with. I'm on a TN visa. So I got to make the most of it. Now, as a function of that, I rolled alongside all the execs and the founder. And I learned about selling when you don't have a product, meeting large customers in person now, not just on the phone, building rapport, building relationships, turning those customer problems into product requirements, learn to build the website and the marketing materials and the YouTube videos. And so from there, my next job transitioned to running sales and marketing for another startup. Because when you work alongside a founder, honestly, you're operating in dog years. You're not doing things, you're creating things, right? There's a big difference. You're creating the playbooks in the early stages. You're not just going through the playbooks that were created. And so with cold calling, being one of the first cold callers, I was creating the playbooks. Here, I was creating the playbooks for sales and marketing and product. And, you know, the two, three years that I spent there felt like, you know, six, seven years of experience. And then the next job was running sales and marketing. And when I hit a ceiling, coincidentally, my co-founder, who's my best friend since university, we're partners in every project, called me and wanted to have the idea for Boast, which is globally hundreds of billions of dollars are given in funding by governments to businesses that build new tech or improve existing tech, but it's a cumbersome process prone to frustrating audits and it takes a long time to get the money, largely done by big four accounting firms. And he said, let's do this together. And I'm like, you know what, rather than working for other startups that are venture back that are not doing well, I may as well go on my own and go on this journey to create my own luck and build a company that I want to work for. So that was the journey to entrepreneurship. But if I had to pull out Four of the key things that helped me immensely as a lesson for your audience, I think if you do these four things, you'll have everything. Number one, your companions matter the most. Now, I was on that rickety bus going from Kuwait to Baghdad to Jordan on the highway of death. Buses were bombed and everything. You weren't sure you're going to live or die. But when I looked around the bus, the adults were singing, laughing, playing the guitar. And, you know, as I reflect back, I realize it's neither the destination nor the journey, but the companions that matter the most. You could be in the slums of Mumbai and swimming in the puddles and not want to leave, or you could be sipping wine or champagne in a chateau in Paris and just want to get out of there, right? You're the average of the people you surround yourself with. Great companions not only make it memorable, can make you feel like a rock star, and loneliness is the number one killer in America. So, you know, your companions matter the most, right? So your community is key, number one. All my learning from 
getting our customers at Boast, getting our partners, all the relationships. I've lived in so many different cities. I'm currently in Dubai is all through that traction community. Not only that, the investors who bought half the company also came to an event we hosted. So the community for me is everything. Number two is communication. Communication is literally the rails of everything we do. If you can't communicate, you don't have an audience. You have an empty room. Clearly articulating your vision to excite and inspire people is something a founder needs to do day in, day out. It's not a one and done activity because people who are energized and inspired can move mountains. If you want to communicate just to inform people, just send an email. But you want to energize people because that's how companies that are enduring are built on energy, on inspiration, on vision. The third thing is your ability to create. A lot of what you're doing is creating, creating connections, creating playbooks, creating product, creating content. And the last, the fourth C, without the C, you have nothing. You literally have nothing. You can be the best communicator, the best creator, and have the best community. But without this fourth C, you will have nothing. And that is consistency. Consistency on small actions lead to big outcomes over time. Consistency is what we call overnight success, right? Like there wouldn't be Mr. Beast, there wouldn't be Warren Buffett, there wouldn't be Larry Ellison. Every successful person just never stopped. Look at where they started. Like Gary Vaynerchuk, he believed in video so much. I think in 2005, I, I was a part of the HubSpot's inbound marketing community. And everything I learned about sales and marketing was from them. Gary Vaynerchuk had this course on video marketing for business and he was so bullish on it. He never stopped. That's why he's Gary V today, right? And that's, that's a big thing. Consistency is key. Amazing. It's an incredible story. And it seems it's a key part of your inspiration for what led you to Boast and a number of these other ventures as well, too, which I'd love to dive in further. And from my understanding, Boast had reached 10 million ARR. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about what it took to get that product company to that level, as well as the importance of this community-led growth concept. Obviously, community is a key part of who you are, what you've lived, experienced. It sounds like you've leveraged that as a growth strategy for your software company as well, too. Love to hear you talk a little bit more about both. Definitely. So, you know, when we started the company, I moved to a new city. Alex, who had the idea, was in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. At the time, I was in San Francisco. My wife was now doing a fellowship at Stanford, but moved in to his spare bedroom. He had a futon there, and we started the company. Now, you know what's funny is you don't realize this, but when you're doing it, it's always throwing spaghetti on the wall. And your default is the experience you had, your recent experience. My recent experience was all selling, cold calling, selling the last five, six years before we started Boast in 2012. But when tough times hit, it's not your experience that's your gut reaction or your knee-jerk reaction. It's your DNA, I guess. It's uh, it, it's your conditioning. It's your nurture, right? And so I didn't realize this. All my life, I was conditioned around community, right? From that slums to the Gulf War to the communities I was a part of. So building relationships and building community was my DNA. And so your uh, your natural instinct is your nurture that kicks in when you're faced with calamity. And I never realized this until that when we started Boast is started cold calling, cold emailing the stable companies, manufacturing, construction, oil and gas, 
and look at what we're selling, right? Give us your data, your R&D technical data, and we'll get you money from the government. Is the best form of capital, no interest, no equity. It sounds like a scam, right? And even if it's not a scam and they heard of it, they're working with a big four accounting firm. So dejected, I'm like, oh man, my experience of five, six years is literally failing here. Nobody is interested, no ma major company is interested in like furthering conversations, right? This is bad. My experience is going to crap right now. So we started hitting the events of this manufacturing, oil and gas construction. And we realized we just couldn't vibe with them. We just couldn't. Like we looked like two guys who threw on a suit jacket on top of a hoodie. And they were the cigars club. There was no connection, no camaraderie. So dejected, we start going to the startup events. And we feel this instant connection. We're at zero trying to get to one. They're in the early stages. We become friends with them. Great conversations. We start hanging out together, eating together, drinking together, partying together, hosting events together, participating in hackathons together. Now, you know, back then, like, like I said, right, <laughs> cold calling was my recent experience. But when I got pushed against the wall, my gut reaction survival instinct was community. Now, I'll share the framework that came out of it looking back, right? Because back then, dude, it was throwing spaghetti on the wall and this stuck. So now your early days of a company, you want to build a community-led company. Where do you start? You don't even have a target market. How do you figure out your target market? Again, four things to figure out your target market. Number one, do you have a passion for this audience or this the content you're creating? If you hate your audience, you'll never be able to sustain, right? Building a community-led company or a business is a long slog. It's a marathon of the heart and mind. If you hate your audience, you'll never be able to sustainably create. The second thing is, is it a small but growing niche? Is it going to turn into a big market? The third is, is there a propensity to pay? If they don't pay you, you have no business. And the fourth one, is there an ease of access? The ease of access is key. You can have the best market that you have a passion for, but if you can't get in, you're done. The next thing is understanding this market really well. Understand where they eat, breathe, drink, sleep, their titles, their problems, and their goals. But problems and goals are short-lived. So also their long-term aspirations. Because as a company, you'll evolve, right? You'll evolve beyond the first product. Your problem, your customers' problems your ideal customer profiles, problems, and goals will give you your product one, two, maybe. But when you latch on to their long-term aspiration, it'll give you your vision and your future products. So understand their aspirations and what stands in the way. Now, as a function of hanging out with these people, we found two white spaces, right? We understood the aspirations. We understand the problems. We found two white spaces. This is 2012. White space number one is nobody was giving any love to startups. No service provider would. They would make fun of us for serving startups. They're like, ah, these guys are not going to pay you. You guys are going to go bankrupt. And we would say things like, man, your customers don't want to work with us. And you don't want to serve people like us. So we're left to serve our own. Now, today, all those accounting firms are launching startup programs. I'm like, yeah, because the market has exploded. So you're following the money. But where were you back then? The second... Uh, thing like you know and tied to that is like the media local media also wasn't giving that community the startup community any attention the second thing was all the events we would go to were organized by event organizers 
So they didn't understand the founder pains and the speakers they would bring would talk about high level CEO platitudes, man. Like some CEO of a multi hundred million dollar company or $50 million company talking about their journey. Man, I started a company. I quit my job. I don't need inspiration. What I need is the tactics. How do I get my first 10 customers? How do I launch my first product? How do I drive traffic? What channels do I pick? How do I get my first angel investors? That's what I care about. Not like some inspiration from your journey, right? And so we found those two white spaces. And so that is key when you latch onto a market is to understand the white space. And the only way to understand the white space is spend time with them, go hang out at their events, eat, breathe, drink, sleep where they do, and ask a lot of questions, right? Basically, you'll come up with the top problems, the burning questions that if you had to write an ultimate guide for this ICP, what would be the chapters, subchapters, and key topics? So we landed on that. Now you determine the circle of influence for this audience. And that is key. The audience is the nucleus, and then you have the, the, the circle of influence, right? And the circle of influence is very key because once you have the circle of influence, you can dominate and influence your ideal customer profile. So step number one of figuring out the circle of influence is who do they follow? This will give you a list of influencers you can interview for your podcast or invite as speakers for your meetups, et cetera. Who do they fund? Meaning what services and tools they pay for. This will give you a list of potential partners that you can co-host events with or invite as sponsors. And the last one is what do they frequent? What platforms they're prevalent on? What blogs, magazines they read? What events do they go to? So you can distribute your content there. Now, when you know the kind of blogs and magazines they read, what we started doing is we started inviting TechCrunch and Forbes every year to interview the speakers at our conference. I didn't need to hog the limelight. And every year, TechCrunch and Forbes is there without fail for like seven years in a row. And so now what happens is when a founder comes to your community event, they know they're going to get tactical advice. They know they're going to meet the influencers they follow. They know they're going to meet the other service providers they buy from. They know they're going to see media and press that they read. And it feels like, man, it's my tribe. It is my tribe, right? And so that circle of influence is key. Now, once you have the circle of influence, you got to figure out what kind of community you want to build. There's three kinds of communities you can build. Community type one is a community of practice where you bring people together to learn about a specific field or a craft. Community type two is a community of product where you build people together to learn about your product, to build on your product, to distribute on your product, to become product evangelists, like the Atlassian community, the GitLab community, Microsoft community. And the third is a community of play where you bring people together to have a good time, like the Harley Davidson community, the Nike Running Club, Red Bull, CrossFit, the community of like play. Now, I tell businesses, especially B2B, if you don't have a product, with customers, or you don't have product market fit, meaning customers are not retaining in your product, or it's not a product that's frequently used, don't build a community of product because you'll invite people and they'll feel like they're being invited to a timeshare presentation. You don't want to go to an event like that, right? And uh, and so... Yeah. And, and, you know, we get invited to those kinds of events all the time and we eat their food and we leave as soon as they start the presentation. <laughs> so build a community of practice. And a lot of people ask us like, hey, why did you call the community traction? 
You remember I said, understand where your customer's aspiration is. If we called it the Boast community, it would look like a timeshare presentation because we had no customers. We called it traction because what do entrepreneurs want money for from the government or any source to fund their business? Why do they want to fund their business? To get traction. So we called it traction. It was tied to the aspiration of our customers. And, and so then, you know, once you have that now, see, you figured out the target market, you understand their problems, goals, their aspirations, and what stands in the way, you know who they follow, who they fund, where they frequent. So you understand the circle of influence, and you know the kind of community you want to build. Then I recommend creating content for them on an online medium and bringing them together in an offline medium. So online, create content to build an audience. But an audience is a one-way communication. Yes, people comment on LinkedIn and all of that. But really, unless people interact with one another, it's not a community. So online audience, and then bring that together. Now, how it worked for us was in 2012, LinkedIn wasn't huge for content distribution. Podcasting for businesses wasn't huge. It was all blogging. It was all blogging. And we said, man, if we blog on our website, the SEO is going to take forever. I'm not going to compete with Neil Patel and all these experts like Jason Lemkin, Jason Freed. We're going to get nowhere. The other thing is we're not experts on this space either. We have only been a part of failed startups. So how are we going to talk about this, right? Of course, you can curate. And so that was that was one. And, and so the first step to building this audience was we reached out to the local newspaper and we said, can you give us a column to cover startups? First reaction was, we haven't heard of you. It's not of interest. So reached out to a bunch of regional blogs and got a blog uh, post with a popular regional startup blog. They just needed content. Now, of course, I can't talk about my experience building startups, but what I can talk about is curate content from other startups. So I covered two or three startups, shared on the regional blog. Those startups, of course, when you cover somebody in the press, they shared with all their friends and family members. It got hundreds of retweets. Twitter was huge. Now, I took that blog post and I went back to the editor and I said, hey, you see how much traffic this has got? You're losing a section of the audience, which is going to be your largest audience in the future. The newspaper is losing that. I can bring you that audience. He's like, fine. You know, this blog post you've written has done well. I'll give you a blog post. Let's see how it does on our newspaper blog. And this is a national newspaper that has a regional uh, outlet as well. But the whole blog and everything comes from the national newspaper. So it's a high domain authority website. And now another learning here, unless you're doing something illegal as a founder, never ask for permission, beg for forgiveness, because you'll spend the rest of your life asking for permission. So I could have called that blog any number of things, but I'm like, what would I call it that drives so much social proof that it sustains? So I called it Startup of the Week. <laughs> he never gave me a weekly call-up. He gave me one blog post. I covered a startup founder that had raised three million bucks. And I put it on. Man, he blasted to the stratosphere. It had like so many retweets and shares beyond the first regional blog. And I have... It's evening or next day or something. And I had a couple of missed calls from the editor. I'm like, oh my God, he's going to lose it. Because Startup of the Week implies like it's a weekly award from the national newspaper. So he's like, I pick up the phone or, or dial him back rather. And he's like, Lloyd, this is great. If you commit to writing it every week, I'll give you a print column. 
boom, I never expected it. Never expected it. Wow, that's you, cool. So there's one macro learning here. You can't just take content and throw it on like a platform like a LinkedIn or a Twitter or whatever, especially in the early days. You need to seed it, right? Otherwise, it'll look like there's no traffic. You need to seed it. How do you seed it? Look at your contact list on your phone. Who are the people that fit your ICP on your phone or even your friends, your family, your WhatsApp, your Facebook, your LinkedIn, your email contacts? Easily, you'll have hundreds of people. When you write a piece of content the first, second, third time, reach out to them to like, share, retweet. It'll drive it traffic. You have to drive it. When you drive it, that traffic and that retweet, it immediately gives you social proof. And that's why that editor got attracted. The second time, it blew up even more. And now he's given me a weekly print column, right? But I drove it myself, right? I drove it. I did the work to drive it. I didn't just leave it there. And so... Now that weekly column that went into print gave me four things. One, it gave me a weekly backlink to a new website from the highest domain ranking site in the country. So my SEO juice started to jump. Two, instant credibility. Two guys who nobody knew now have a print column. Three, every Monday, the founders are going at 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. or whatever, early in the morning to the newspaper stand, buying a bunch of print copies because print today in a sea of blogs even, is relevant. It's like, oh, this is legit. They're taking photos and sharing it with their friends, family members. And the fourth thing, I threw a form in there saying, if you're interested in being featured, please apply. So now my database started growing, right? Database started growing, people started applying. And I knew now from the events we had gone to is all the events that were being hosted were high-level CEO platitudes. So we, whoever applied, we would invite them to a meetup at our co-working space, which we had the meeting space for free. And with pizza was $9.99, pepperoni pizza or cheese pizza from Pizza Pizza. And we'd send an invite like, hey, Sean, we're hosting a meetup with influencer Melissa. Like, you know, Melissa has bootstrapped her company to 1 million ARR. And she's going to talk about how she got her first 10 customers, the exact playbook, right? And there's going to be free pizza. 10 people showed up. Next time we did it, 10 more people showed up, kept showing up, kept showing up. The startup of the week column we kept writing was a good boomerang effect. The audience was building, list was building, and would bring them together to interact with one another. The key here was consistency. We never stopped. Week in, week out, we started doing these events. Week in, week out, we were co-hosting events. Week in, week out, we were writing this column. One day, 200 people showed up at the co-working space, man. And the guys who run the co-working space are like, listen, you can't like hijack the corking space to run a free event for 200 people. This is like now a full-blown conference. We went down to some AV shop, like, you know, the um, the corner like record store and they had a projector and we they had speakers. We got that makeshift hijacked all the aisles. I'll never forget. Even the mayor of Calgary showed up to that event. It was hilarious. That's and then... Awesome. And that eventually evolved into what we call today traction, 100 plus thousand subscribers. We've had the C-suite from Uber and Atlassian and Twilio and HubSpot and some of the biggest names in tech. And, and so that was the journey. But the key thing there was, you know, community, creation, communication, and the last one, consistency. We just never, never stopped. And as we went and did that, did that, did that, that was our journey to 10. And think about what it did, right, in terms of monetization. We're building relationships with people. So it's very easy to ask, right, saying, hey, do you have a need for the service? They're going to be like, you're, you're adding so much free value to me. You're the good guys. Why not do business with you? That We had their circle of influence, the influencers, 
and the people they bought from, they started referring us business. So cool. What a wild story. And uh, I love how you're connecting all the dots together as well, too. Like not just setting something up as it's a one-time thing, but making it sustainable and building a ton of growth into it along the way as well, which is fascinating. Uh, so that it becomes self-sustaining. And then ultimately, it's just like the growth potential is seemingly unlimited. Very cool. Uh, so a lot of opportunity and community-led growth. Thank you for telling and sharing more about that story. I definitely want to dive into a lot more topics with you, Lloyd. What I'm thinking we'll probably do is do another episode to cover some of these other areas as well, too, because I know you got a lot of experience in other areas that are definitely relevant for our audience as well. Also, before we wrap up this episode, I want to hear more about like what you could have going on lately. And then for our listeners or for anyone that you'd like to reach out to you and connect with you, where should they go to learn more? How can they get connected with you? Um, how could they find out more about your book? Anything else you want to talk about there that can be included in the episode as well, too, would be great. Definitely. So, you know, what's interesting is we sold a majority stake in Boast, 52 some odd percent. Because we had bootstrap, we still own 35, 38% of the company, something like that. And so we stepped out of the day-to-day -day of the company, transitioned to the board. I sit on a couple other boards. And, uh, you know, life is good. See, you know, all our life, I chase success. All my life, I chase success looking for happiness. And when money came, I hit rock bottom. I felt like I lost my tribe when I left the day-to-day -day of the company. So what's really funny is all my life, I had no money, right? But I had a tribe of people from that slums in my summers in Mumbai to the Gulf War to the community of friends through building the startup. I built my identity around this company and this community and this tribe. When the money came and I left the day-to-day -day of the company, I literally face-planted. I, for the first time, came into millions. But the first time, first time I experienced truly what depression was. I got drunk, overweight, became insufferable. And then what brought me to sanity was a community of people as well around health and fitness. And as I then started to reflect in my free time, I realized like loneliness is the number one killer in America. There's this concept of blue zones, which are the five places where people live functionally until they're 100. Functionality is key to longevity, otherwise longevity is meaningless. Now these places that, called that are called blue zones have nine common traits. Four or five of them have to do with human-to-human -human connection, communal living, right? And then I started to research, man, all the brands that have endured over time, not just the tech companies that came up in the last 20 years, but the Harley Davidsons and the Apples of the world, like why did they endure? I rewatched all our traction community content over the last seven years. Talked to nearly like, you know, a thousand or more community members, formal interviews, conversations, group calls. And I found something very interesting. Every obscure idea that eventually went on to become an enduring global phenomenon from Christ to CrossFit had these exact four same stages. People listen to you or buy your product, you have an audience. When you bring that audience together, it becomes a community. When that community comes together to create impact towards a greater purpose that's beyond your product or profit, it becomes a movement. And when that movement has undying faith in its purpose through sustained rituals, over time, it becomes a cult or a religion. And I'm like, this is insane. Audience, community, movement, religion. And the springboard of going from an audience to a cult-like brand is community. A lot of us you know, we see influencers, we're in the age of influencers, micro-influencers. If the influencer stops creating, they lose the audience, right? But if you build this community, it will sustain probably longer because it's human-to-human -human connection. 
And, um, you know, we create so much content on all these platforms like LinkedIn and Instagram. If they change the algorithm, what happens? You're done. So the key to sustaining for the long haul is community. So I decided to write a book from grassroots to greatness, 13 rules to build iconic brands with community-led growth. It's on fromgrassrootstogreatness.com. It was a bestseller last week alongside Elon Musk's book. So I'm very proud. We sold, I think, 7,000 copies or something. Uh, so that's the love of the uh, love of the community. And on the website from grassrootstogreatness.com, next week I will have a Notion doc, which is a workbook, because this book is all stories, but the workbook will give you more detailed templates and behind-the-scenes interviews. And there'll be a page for all the podcasts I've appeared on probably in the last eight, nine weeks, I've appeared on 70 plus podcasts. And over time, probably that's 150. Then my own podcast and some other resources. So it'll be your guide to building a community-led business on fromgrassrootstogreatness.com. And follow me on LinkedIn, Lloyd Lobo, double L-O-Y-E-D-L-O-B-O. And I want to end with this, man. Yesterday's innovation is always tomorrow's commodity, right? If you build a community, you will not become a commodity. Amazing. Thank you so much, Lloyd. And for our listeners, check out Lloyd's stuff. It's fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Lloyd, and sharing your experience. I'm excited to see what's next. I know it's greatness. Um, and uh, excited to have you back on the show for another episode. Thank you so much, man. When it's ready, let me know. I'll share it in our newsletter. Thanks for listening to this episode of Product Launch. I hope you got value out of it. I like to feature product people on my podcast because that's who I love to help. I'm a product strategist, and I can help you scale your business and grow your profit through a product. If you'd like to learn more about how I can help you, email me at sean at nextstep.io. That's sean, S-E-A-N, at nextstep, N-X-T-S-T-E-P dot I-O. Or visit my website at nextstep.io. That's N-X-T-S-T-E-P dot I-O. Hey folks, Sean here, and thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you got a ton of value out of it. If you did, I'd encourage you to also sign up for my free five-day email course about launching a profitable B2B SaaS application for less than $750. If you'd like to sign up for that course, you can do so at nextstep.io forward slash B2B SaaS.